Hello there, listener. My name is Seth Decker, and I am a director. I'm here to sell you something, and it's not Blue Apron or subscription service or MeUndies or anything like that. It's an opportunity to give to a really cool Indiegogo. If you go to Indiegogo.com and type in The Bludgeoning or Manchester Media, you will be greeted by a page for a horror comedy that we've been working on for the last few months. I've been self-financing the pre-production so far. Our hotels are booked. Flights are scheduled for our cast to come in. We are ready to shoot. This Indiegogo is just to help us upgrade our equipment. We know that we can deliver a really killer image on the equipment that we have in-house, but being able to rent some legitimate Hollywood toys would just mean the world to us. We're going to use this Indiegogo to rent an Ari Alexa Mini. That's the same thing they shot Blade Runner 2049 on. We're going to be bringing in a really cool lighting package that allows us to light really amazing colors and bring a really vibrant feel to Salem, where we're going to be shooting the movie on location. I'm excited about this. This is a huge step for me in my career, potentially turning into the ability to to make movies professionally for us and this team. And it's been made possible by all of these cool podcasts that we've been working with as as creative outlets over the years, teaching us how to, to dissect stories. Now we're making our own story. It's really awesome, and I'm so excited. Please go to Indiegogo.com, type in Montressor Media or The Bludgeoning. Every single level has really cool rewards that exponentially get cooler. Just starting off at the $10 level, you're going to get access to a digital comic of this movie. We're going to do a comic adaptation of the movie that you'll get access to just for giving us the 10 bucks to get this project done. Like that in and of itself is amazing. But we have levels going all the way up to a producer level where you could get IMDb credit for a feature film potentially going out through distributors like Lionsgate or Shudder or A24 or The Bludgeoning. That's where we're aiming. No promises yet, but that's where we're aiming. We're guaranteed an Amazon release at this point. So, like, the project is happening. Do you want to buy a ticket onto the train is the question. I'm not selling any kind of subscription service. I'm selling a real cowboy dream of making movies on our own dime, on our own turf, on our own rules. There's no producer studio oversight. We are the ones making this movie. I think that's awesome. I appreciate all your time. I'm sure I've taken enough of your time for this podcast that you're listening to currently. I appreciate you you taking the time to listen to me. Please consider giving to the Indiegogo or checking us out on social media. If you just want to chat about the project more, I'm here for that. At Montressor Media on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Reach out to us there if you have any burning questions. This isn't celebrities in Hollywood that you can't reach out to. We're real people that you can talk to about an actual professional movie that's being made. I think that's really killer. Please consider giving to the project. This week's episode is brought to you by the Film Rescue Show. The Film Rescue Show is a long-form podcast in which their crew and a guest fix a film every week. Want a good first episode? Check out episode 89 with Axel and myself, where he pitched fixes for the League of Extraordinary Drummond. Still waiting on that call, Warner Brothers. For fans of filmmaking, writing, and behind-the-scenes content, check out the Film Rescue Show on all your favorite podcasting sites today.
Hello and welcome to what we are calling bolters. Why are they called bolters? Because they're rapid fire and only last about 24 to 30 minutes. I'm Lord Friend Ulrich. And I'm a shield brother, Axel Wright. And we've been debating whether this one's going to be heavy or not. <laughs> this one, we're upgrading it to a heavy bolter because it's a bigger, meatier discussion. But yeah, we'll see. Anyway, what's up, man? Uh, not a whole lot. The usual fun and excitement. I will try to pick up energy, but I am really tired right now for no particular reason. So <laughs> we live in the darkest timeline and every day is a struggle. It doesn't help that uh, I had a date lined up for tomorrow and I might still, but I just got a text from the, the lady saying that they're ill and uh, we'll see how they feel tomorrow. And that's unfortunate so <laughs> oh no and you know i love that these get released out of order so whatever the saga ends up being people are going to be piecing it together i guess so anyway all right well before we get into the main meat we're going to thank our patrons the people that like us so much they give us money so that we can keep doing random spinoff podcasts and keep this going week to week seriously you have no idea how much their contributions help they are Pam Yelly, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Gelly, Krug, Arthur Crane, Kevin Vade, Brendan Engel, John Vinnels, Kit, Kenny, Seth Decker, Donald Lucy, Nathan Lewis, Carson Will, and Scott Rubin. Now, if you'd like to join that illustrious legion, maybe, you know, help suggest future bolters, head on over to patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. Anyway, what in today's bolter are we talking about, Ulrich? We're going to do the one, I feel like everyone's kind of had this train of thought at some point, and I think you might have actually suggested this episode, but we're going to do our top five fixes for if we were put in charge of Warhammer 40k at Games Workshop. And we're doing, we're not doing the obvious, you know, answers that we would kind of immediately do if we got... I mean, we're doing a few of those, but... (laughs) Yeah, but these are like the obvious ones. Like, obviously we would intimate... in. Yeah, instigate female space marines like no no that's an easy one let's get that one and you know cutting prices is like well they might stop us but you know that's also an obvious answer yeah so instead we just each wrote down five mine are i don't know if they're in an order i just kind of wrote down I five did mine in descending order as i as much as i was committed to them being in this order at the moment of writing yeah. So, and I also want to be clear, neither one of us are business majors or anything mm-hmm. like that. So, I I want to be very upfront that I'm totally open to the idea that these are stupid ideas, but as hobbyists who love Warhammer and want what's best for it, these are things that we think would be good for the hobby and or business and or games workshop, which is a separate entity from the hobby it's like a separate thing, but it's related. Anyway, point is, there's a lot of caveats here, but when we get to the fun part of the discussion. <laughs> well, and last things last, let us know your ideas. I'm curious what your fixes are, because I feel like everyone has their own ideas. Like, well, if I were running Games Workshop, I would get rid of Space Marines or whatever, you know, the thing is. All right. And now out of curiosity, are you starting from five or one? Because if you're starting from five, I figure you should go first. But if you're starting from one, I figure I should go first. I'm starting from five because this is descending in. If I could only, these are descending in the choices I would make uh, based on importance. All right, then you go, Ulrich. My first one is we're going to let characters die. We're going to let the Imperium lose, and we're going to let the story kind of progress. So we talked about this with. If you're listening to this, we had a couple episodes with Lore Master of Sotek, who's a killer content creator who does lore videos for Warhammer Fantasy. 
And he told us, because neither Orkai are super into Age of Sigmar, I'm working on it because Total War Warhammer has got me into Warhammer Fantasy more, but still don't know too much about it. But apparently Age of Sigmar has been doing some crazy world story progression stuff, and they're totally not afraid to just murk people. And so we said at the time, that is one thing that 40K could certainly take from it, especially because there are so many named characters in the Imperium, and there's this weird fear, apparently, among some players that once the character's dead, you can't play them or something, which is not true. So there's really no reason to just <laughs> make some good I stories. I don't know where it comes from. Because even in Warhammer Fantasy, there were a ton of characters that were long dead that you got to do the models. They just stopped being included in the main narratives. And, I mean, yeah, 40K had the problem. And AOS, I kind of know what their thing is. Well, but plus, they've got plus, these fun well, plus, rolling narratives. Yeah. Well, plus AOS is doing this thing where they take models that were for named characters, and they still are those named characters, but they also are a not-named same thing. Literally, a model that I wish was in plastic is Ikit Claw's model, but if you look it up on Games Workshop's site right now, it's not called Ikit Claw's, it's called an Arch Warlock, but that's definitely Ikit Claw. So, yeah, that's its own weird carryover from Warhammer Fantasy. But the other thing is, there are so many character models that are metal or resin that I wouldn't mind, like, oh no, I can't use this terrible, outdated model anymore. Whatever will I do? It's funny because there is a certain level of the 40k story is partially defined by stagnation. I mean, it's literally a stagnant empire. So there is definitely a certain level of I don't want things to change too much. Like, I don't need the Imperium actually winning, for instance. The Indominus Crusade was perfectly fine, if not problem for some other reasons. But we do need to see, like, have it feel like... If that stagnation is too obvious, if the idea that the story is not moving becomes a thing where like you feel that from a writing perspective and not from a in the story perspective then that completely changes how you interact with it so yeah because the problem right now is i used to buy the campaign books when they came out because i was interested for the lore but now they nothing changes no one dies nothing ends it's just reset the clock back to zero and if I'm in charge, I'm like, no, we're going to incentivize people to buy this because this character might die. This planet might fall. This might actually impact the story. We kind of went on a bigger tangent about this in our episode where we talked about if 40K has a lack of object permanence. Yeah, but let me let me give instead of it's very easy for me to be like, yeah, kill some space wolves because they've got like 800 named characters. Yes. But let me let me put my own head on the line here. There's there's no world characters in the Sisters of Battle that need to be, that could really be killed because most of them are pretty new. But in the Orcs, my other army, we got a few characters. In fact, you know what? Maybe this is heresy by my other Orc fans, but if they came up with a story where Commissar Yarrick and Gazkul finally had their big climactic showdown, like Yarrick gets I don't know a Dread Knight for some reason, and and both those characters die, like I'm still gonna have my Gazkul model. I still am going to use it, and I and if it, the story is good, I'll be happy because, like, it, giving Gazgul a cool ending would be a good cap on what's already a badass character. So and I'm putting my own head on the line there when I'm saying that, but I'm saying that, yeah, I'm open to these kind of changes to the narr- to the story. 
Well, killing characters needs to happen because we're not getting new characters. We're just repeating the same old characters, and it's kind of boring. Yeah. Well, and the plot armor yeah. becomes really apparent. Yeah, I've watched enough shows with plot armor to know that it can... Like, plot armor, of course, always exists, and there are certain characters that you absolutely should not kill. Like, Robute Guillemin has plot armor, but he should have plot armor. Like, he sat on the throne for a thousand years. He can, you know... But Calgar, that's what I'm saying. It's like Calgar had like two times he should have died in the same book and got to come back. And I'm like, you know, he's had a fun storied career and he's been around since Rogue Trader. Maybe we let him die and, you know, do somebody else. Yeah, exactly. So they're, you know, it's important to have that distinction, but I think it's a fair thing. All right. My number five is embrace third party marketing in the community. Now, here's what I mean by that. We are all aware of what's gone down in the last year and change when it comes to animations. Oh, yeah, that one's gone. Yeah, so in Warhammer Plus and whatnot. So to me, I never understood... Like, I've heard some arguments as to why the super tight grip on the IP has to do with some of the other countries that Games Workshop operates in, particularly countries like Germany. So I will admit that my legal expertise in regards to that is low, but... Looking at other fandoms, especially some of the geekiest fandoms, having an active community that makes art as part of your community, like fan animations, literally does nothing but help improve and spread your your hobby, your what you're selling. In, in Games Workshop's case, their product, which is models. The Games Workshop has said many times they're a model company, not really a game company. Well, guess what? People want to buy the models when they see things like Astartes. And you have a little bit of recognition of this because you hired the guy who makes a starty, who made a starties. So yeah, and they seem to kind of rolled back their no fan animation stance a little. Yeah, but I wouldn't just roll like like embrace it. Be more involved with your community. Be more involved with third party marketing yeah. and letting fans do these kind of things. Encourage it. Make have have competitions where like hey. Who sends us the, you know, an animation that, like, gets the most votes in the community or something and will send you, like, a box of whatever you made the animation about? Like, that'd be an interesting, like, cool little marketing ploy that would also be – sorry, that's just off the top of my head. That might be a terrible idea. But my point is, like, I think that's an important, healthy part of a fan community. So Well, they already love to share models that are painted and conversions and whatnot. I just I don't understand why you don't lean into the free marketing that is fan animation and drawings. Yeah, exactly. So there's not really not much more to say about that, so we can move on. But that's that's one of the things I would do if I were in charge. I would start creating in not just not just being okay, but I would start creating incentives for basically my fans to to put this cynically do our marketing work for us. So yeah. All right, my number four is to bring back the transport bundles. I don't even know what a transport bundle is. This was a thing before you got into the game, and it was very short-lived. But for a brief window, Games Workshop showed boxes where you got one troop and a transport in a box at a discount. And you could get, like, it was a Space Marine, it was Tactical Marines and a Drop Pod, or Tactical Marines and a Rhino, I think it was Orc Boys and a Truck, but it was a way to help move the basics. That sounds reasonable. I mean, it seems like they keep 
part of that with their you know their start collecting boxes are here's one vehicle and a bunch of infantry but that vehicle's not necessarily a transport so yeah because the thing i always come to is I, you need transports in your game but i very rarely buy them because well they're not really exciting to build or paint i suppose and it does depend on the transport like i'm excited to paint my truck i am not that excited to, to paint my rhino so i guess i get it yeah, and they all transports always feel overpriced because it's a basic thing you need, and you need lots of them. So I feel like there's no better way to move. And these are great. You tie this, and you get one of these, and you get a start collecting set, and you're already halfway through your army. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it's just a thing for more of the transport heavy armies, but they were so they were such a cool thing. I mean, I had. I bought a couple because it's like, I like drop pots, but I very rarely buy a drop pot. If I can buy a drop pot or a tactical squad, I'm buying the tactical squad because that's 10 little dudes I can paint and assemble versus one big chunky model. But if I, I can get both. I will admit this one's a hard one for me to wrap my head around only because, so I play somewhat regularly with about four different people. And so between us, that's like 10 armies or 11 because we all have multiple armies and across all of those the general thing in the last year and a half of me playing has been like one transport in a list so it's not yeah. a very now Brent, this was more of a thing in seventh when vehicles were better yeah so i'm, I'm not saying you're wrong i'm just saying that i don't have context for for that i guess no it was a big thing well the big the other big thing is in seventh you could shoot from inside your rhino uh, well, I know there's still some open top stuff. I mean, literally, one of my favorite things to do in my orc list is a truck filled with ten flash kits who can fire on top of it because it's open topped. I call it my Death Star. So <laughs> I don't know. I just I, these were such a great idea, and I feel like it's a way to move model kits that aren't your bigger sellers. Like you tie it to one of your bigger sellers. Like everyone's, you're always buying troops. You always need troops, and if it comes with a little added bonus, you're gonna. I think you're gonna. It's a sales thing to me. But that brings us to a question. We don't know what the sales numbers are. We don't know how well transports actually sell. So I don't know, but the rumor is that Tactical Marines outsold everything else Games Workshop had when they were, you know, the prime seller. Is this like recently? This was like end of 7th, beginning of 8th. Oh, okay, okay. So, right. I mean, that's a lot of drop pods and rhinos you could bundle in. Well, in a in a similar vibe to essentially how the audience is acquiring product, my number four is that Games Workshop should embrace 3D printing. And now here's my a loaded one. Yeah, but here's my argument. I have enough friends who I've got three friends with 3D printers. Okay, of them, two of them have used their 3D printers to make models. Of those, both of them have actually bought actual models, too. They use the 3D printers to deal with certain, like, one of them is a Chaos Marines player. But he's also, like, he's got other stuff as well. But he uses them to basically create things like, my buddy who's a Custodes player wanted uh, essentially a bike captain who's on something different than a bike. So he printed out a, a lion thing for him to ride, which is kind of cool. But my other friend 
who is not in Warhammer yet at all, literally printed off a squad of like Marines that he could use for kill team and told me directly, all right, now I didn't have to spend more than the material. I'm going to use this to try to play the game a bit. And if I like it, I'm going to go buy some Death Guard. So, yes, you're going to have people who only print the print what they and and then not buy. That's true. But the number of people who do that is going to be very low. And no matter what process, no matter what you do, they're going to exist. You're not going to be able to stop them. That's just like that's a marginal. It's an accepted margin. So instead, what I would look into, and again, I'm not saying this is a, a foolproof plan. It was open to like tweaking. I would probably have a subscription service where someone basically is subscribed to a STL license kind of thing. And as long as they're subscribed, they have access to certain STLs. That way you yourself are engaging with and essentially have control over the 3D print market because it's not going to go away. And there are most of your fans are not even going to engage with it. They're going to actually still go buy stuff because it's simpler. 3D printers are somewhat complex. I mean, that's going to change going forward. But so get it at the ground floor. You can make money off of the 3D printing by just having it be like, we will give you official STLs if you just pay us a certain amount each month or something. Yeah, no, I'll admit, I've already been kind of debating about getting a 3D printer because the more I learn about it, the more it entices me. And I want it for cool random bits. And there already are tons of little subscription-based services through Patreon. We're like, all right, this month's STL files is just a bunch of random stuff. And if there's one thing that Games Workshop loves to sell us but really kind of sucks at, it's upgrade sprues. Yeah, and this would be a great way to do that. And maybe once – because 3D printers are you know going down in price, other ways you could do it. Maybe you could have like a, a special system where you – have the license has a certain number of uses like per month and you have to access like this page in order to to put it into to feed it into the 3d printer that way you could keep one person for point is there are technological answers to the kinds of problems that a business person might have with this idea and it's just it's going to be better marketing it's going to be you know another source of income i i honestly think that embracing 3d printing and figuring out how you can make it a part of your business as opposed to vehemently trying to shut it down is going to be better yeah, in the long run because i wonder how much they lose to third-party bits manufacturers for people that just want you know different weapons different helmets banners yeah exactly because i'm just thinking like all the cool little shit you could do i mean imagine all the little cool thematic banners or shoulder pads. I mean, Games Workshop writes rules for all these factions and then doesn't make transfers for them. Yeah. So there's a whole corner of market that you're never going to be able to get rid of. So why not? Again, let's try to be, I'll I'll put on my cynical capitalist hat here. You can't get rid of it. Why not capitalize on it then? Imagine Citadel brand resin. Yep. Totally. They do it with paint. Then, these are the kind of things that literally they could be doing. Yeah, no, it really is. And I kind of wonder if there's, it's kind of an old guard mentality. Like this is a new thing that they're kind of coming around to because it really does feel like they're losing so much money out the door to people going, yeah, yeah, no, I'll pay, you know, somebody else to print this off or print for this, you know, file. And it's just little things like a helmet, a crested helmet. 
Well, literally think about it this way. Think about how like before streaming happened, pirating still existed and companies that, you know, own DVDs manufacturers and stuff were I mean, you remember those all the super anti-pirating ads? You, yeah. you don't and essentially streaming was a way to capitalize on what used to be pirating and by making it simpler. So, you had these people, right? Like the people who pirate are always going to pirate, but streaming was essentially a way to be like Hey, here's a simplified version of it where you still pay us. It was a way. It was the same. People always the easiest easiest route of least resistance is the route people always go. Exactly. So if you make it easy and still have a way to monetize it, then you're gonna have a lot of people who are gonna take advantage of your of what you are giving them of the easy path you're offering them. So. Plus. It solves the warehouse issue of producing a lot of different upgrade sprues that might not sell. Yeah. Now, I am totally aware that what I just said has other room for corruption, especially because I pay attention to the video game industry and you could run into situations like a season pass kind of thing going on that are kind of gross. I'm not saying that there aren't potential problems. I'm just saying that it's still better to start trying to figure out how to make this part of the solution as opposed to just thinking of it as a problem. Yeah, because it's not going anywhere. Yeah. All right, on to my number three. Make more thematic and, more importantly, affordable terrain. This one's interesting to me because I agree. I I wish that (laughs) – I have – multiple copies i have two copies of one set of terrain because it came as both part of like my flash gets box and also part of some other like big box i had which you know has like the the horizontal statue and stuff like that but my my buddy bought me a battle sanctum not because i plan to use it in a sisters of battle list but because it's cool looking and we just want to put it down for terrain he's a gsc player he has a frag drill which is like the worst piece of terrain in the game as from a like sheet perspective, but just looks really cool. So yeah, no, there's a distinct like they did a little bit with the faction terrain, and it's like that's cool, and I like that. And we'll circle back to that, but just more cool thematic terrain that just exists to go on your table. Well, that's why I thought that uh, with the the kill zone Octarius box, and it had orc buildings as terrain mm-hmm. i was like why don't we have more stuff like that all terrain you buy is essentially mechanicus or ruins so i'm surprised there's not like why, why isn't there like necron ruin terrain or just straight up like tau nice looking like buildings that could be terrain oh, so yeah. you no, set up- this is one of the, going back to a previous point this is one of the big 3d printing markets is you know just generic cool terrain or terrain that exists outside of bombed out buildings yeah and just like with the 3d printing discussion the, the people who are going to essentially pirate it are always going to do that. So instead of you offer a product that is this, then people will buy it. Now, how much? That's a whole other question entirely, but yeah. there are going to be people who buy it. I'll circle back to the affordable part because terrain has, in 40K, has gotten significantly more limited than from when I started. Because when I got in, they had the Wall of Martyrs line, which was just a huge selection of modular bunkers and gun emplacements and trenches and all this cool stuff that you could build a huge thing with. 
and they axe 90% of that. Now it's just trenches and a bunker. And what's uh, you know, the affordable things? I don't have anything to add to that because I didn't see that. That's before me. So Yeah, no, that was one of the things. And when I say affordable is this terrain, it, terrain is too damn expensive. Care. Well, giving an example might really date us, but when I think about – because I don't think well, I've bought terrain on its own. I've only gotten – other than the Battle Sanctum, quote-unquote, which is only technically terrain. So. Yeah, I'm on the Games Workshop site, and I'm going to pull up some terrain prices. So – Here's an example of the older, you know, priced stuff. Uh, like the basic Wall of Martyrs Imperial Defense line. It's $45. Bunker, $45. Okay, not bad. You know how much the Battle Sanctum is? Um, 60 for a ticket guess? 125 I mean, it's the size of a knight, but that is still definitely overpriced. And now we're, you know, moving on like the basic, you know, buildings and ruins. They're all up near $80. I would have been fine if the Battle Sanctum was 80, but 125 is still too much. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, let's see. And then just, you know, blown up buildings are $45. But the stuff, I don't know. It, and then there's that new bit that's coming with, oh, the Octarius. This, the terrain for Octarius is $112. That's the Orc terrain? That's the Orc terrain. 120 I mean, I haven't seen how, much, how big that set is but it's enough to fill a standard you know kill team game yeah i'm iffy on that certainly then yeah i I get what you mean i mean prices are always a that's why we said we weren't gonna really talk about prices because that's i want to talk about terrain because terrain just feels so disproportionately expensive because you can build it in five minutes yeah there's also the fact that i know i've played plenty of games where we use weird stuff for terrain like yeah one of my one of my games that i have frequently is my buddy dan and he has like aquarium things that mm-hmm. we use as terrain so aquarium's a big one a lot of people use because it looks cool and it's kind of affordable but you want this cool terrain but you don't i mean if you're going to spend 120 dollars, are you going to spend it on terrain or are you going to spend that on a cool centerpiece model yeah, probably uh, like a knight or something, definitely. Yeah, like if you're going to drop that much money, you're not going to do terrain. Like admittedly, I probably wouldn't have bought the Battle Sanctum on my own. It was a gift. It's the only reason I have it. Mm-hmm. So. And I mean, that's what I mean. And it also kind of goes back to the thematic things like, well, it only really works if you're fighting with your sisters at battle. It's not universal. Yeah. And they've yeah. had that problem for a while. Like I have been begging and pleading for like a generic fortress that I could use. It's not going to, you know, be outrageously expensive because also when I first got in, like Age of Sigmar had the Chaos Fortress, which was this giant, massive, beautiful thing. But they stopped producing it. And a lot of people said, well, no one played it. And it's like, well, yeah, because it was $60 a wall segment and like $80 for the gate. And then you had to buy the rule book for it on top of that. Yeah, it's prohibitively expensive, certainly. Uh-huh. And that's kind of where games workshop trains that it's just it's too damn expensive for people to buy and i feel like hey and the small stuff is boring <laughs> yeah. yeah but i mean the small stuff is boring like oh boy creator well i like creators but you know little wall fragments and i don't know i kind of want to see what a non-destroyed or a partially destroyed city would be like and they keep playing around with modular terrain but never really committing to it I don't know, maybe the solution is just bundle it. Do, you know, scaled bundles so that if I Which, do drop 160, it feels like I'm getting a lot. 
That's true, and they it seems like they are touching that a few times, hence why I have two copies of some of the terrain I have, because they were came in bundles with other stuff. Yeah, well, they, the kill team, they've gotten really good. They do some really cool kill team ones, and then they pack it in with some models you hopefully want. You can like, okay, I can justify this. I'm splitting it with a buddy or buying it for a group, but... Which actually brings me to my next point, which is I think in general, especially from a game design standpoint, that Warhammer should be taking more key notes from Warcry and Kill Team. In one one hand, how they're doing their releases, which I think are really smart in general, like how they did the Octarius box, but also how they split things out afterwards, which we see sometimes, like how Gazcool got split into his own thing and Ragnar got split into his own thing after the Prophecy of the Wolf. But like Kill Team's being used as you know a testing ground for some things since we got Plastic Krieg and Corsairs. But also like Kill Team I feel like is understandably constructed a game that was a separate entity from Warhammer at this point. And yes. that kind of design mentality of like, all right, what are we focusing on? This time we want the individual characters to feel like, you know, big and 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 important and named and whatnot. Like, I'm not saying necessarily do that entirely with, with Warhammer 40K, because, you know, we still want those big games with a lot of models. But I think taking a few of the design kind of choices that they're doing in Warcry and Kill Team, like right now, for instance, there's a problem, I'd say, with the game that everything is generally too killy, which is funny because it wasn't too long ago that I think everything was too durable. I think that it might be good if we toned down the killy, toned down the durable, but just up wounds across the board so that we have more of this idea of like things can be hit without dying. But I don't know. That- yeah, because there's something unsatisfying about doing a bunch of shots and then someone going, oh, my invul save. Yeah, so I think instead of having things... There's also something equally frustrating about, well, my weapon negates your invul save. And it's like, well, what's the point of a goddamn invul save if everyone can counter it? Exactly. So instead kind of leaning towards everything as a health bar, yeah, it might make it so that if you have like a squad of 30 cultists and they all have multiple wounds or something, that that's harder to keep track of. But I think that you might still have a more satisfying general kind of feeling experience. Although I would argue that in that case, even cultists might still stay at one wounds. Yeah, no, but cultists, all your chaff units stay chaffy, but there's definitely vehicles and big creatures feel a bit too squishy. Yeah, like, let me put it this way. A knob, right, is a two-wound model. I still feel like that feels oddly weak for what a knob is, or even like a primary space marine. I mean, if, if everything across the board went up so that it felt like there was, like, health bars, quote-unquote, so, like, a knob had, like, four wounds, for example then it, I had, I'd had i feel like you'd have that closer feeling that, like, Warcry and Kill Team have of, are right, these are my elite guys, and they can take a few bullets, but they're and they're bloody, but they're still out there fighting. I don't know. I, I'm not well, a game designer. One of the best things but... they did with uh, vehicles is they added the degenerating, you know, wound system Yeah. so that it could keep going, but it got the stats got worse. And I was like, oh, that's a game changer. So I feel like... And don't get me wrong, I like 9th edition. I liked 8th edition, which is where I got in. But I think that maybe there is too much reticence about overhauls. I don't know what the older systems are like, but they, I mean, they changed Kill Team from being like 40k to being like Warcry, and I kind of feel like we might be better off if the 40k proper takes just a little bit more in that direction. Not all the way, obviously, but just a little bit more. <laughs> I haven't played the new edition of Warcry or uh, Kill Team, so I can't really comment. But the, in terms of how editions work, 
Games Workshop more or less kind of treats it of go till it's broke and then hit reset. Yeah. Anyway, next. My number two is updating all resin and metal models. I'm just going to say right up front, that's my number one. So we can just get both these out real quick. Yeah. If you have a, there's no excuse for metal models to be on their site. Like, I shouldn't be going to Games Workshop site and see anything metal. That's unacceptable. Resin is annoying. Metal is unacceptable. Well, the fact is they've kept right along with the price increases of everything else. Yeah. Which is extra frustrating. And there's not a lot of metal left. But like, there's still enough that it's like, seriously, guys, it's 2022. Why do you still have this? But, like, I want to get into Skaven. And particularly, I want to collect Clan Scryer Skaven. You know what the base troop for Clan Scryer Skaven is? Acolytes. Acolytes are metal models that come in packs of one that are like 23 bucks a pop, and they're troops. This is not acceptable. <laughs> yeah. No, especially the prices they're charging. That's the big thing. The prices you are charging... If you want to argue, well, it's for the quality, then you can't have janky-ass resonant metal models, yeah, some of which it, are decades old. Yeah, and, like, I get that they're focusing in a lot of different ways. And you know what? I, I know that the joke is overplayed about, you know, Space Marines and Primaris and Games Workshop made the joke themselves. Like, I'm not saying stop your focus uh, on, on Space Marines. Space Marines sell. I get it from business perspective. But I'm also saying, like, every release, I think – you should be fixing at least one resin and or metal model. Metal first, obviously, but just any release. Yeah. Some Something should be updated. And, I mean, we've seen when they do model updates, those models sell. Those armies get an uptick yeah, because course, people like new and shiny. Yeah, that's what happened with the, the Eldar recently. So Yeah, people like new and shiny. And the fact that there's still, I mean, the Eldar line is so outdated in so many ways. It's like, no. Quit that. If you want to charge as much as you're charging, you don't get to, you know, have models from the 80s that you're selling me for, you know, $70. Yeah, and I got to see some of it. I mean, when I came in collecting orcs, I literally was like, I want plastic commandos. And guess what? Kill Team gave us plastic commandos, and they're awesome. I didn't actually get them because I'm actually pretty happy with my orc collection right now, but that's not the point. The point is that from a hobby health perspective, they, they did it, and it's awesome, and so now it's like – I didn't even realize there were still metal models in existence until I started looking at Age of Sigmar stuff, which is baffling because Age of Sigmar has actually way, in general, more beautiful models than 40K. I don't really know why that is. We I think it's might do an episode of this for Age of Sigmar as well. Yeah, but the point is that Age of Sigmar's model lines tend to be amazing with two glaring exceptions – which are the Seraphon, which are the Lizardmen, and oh, the Skaven. Yeah. So, like, me and my, me and Wretched, we went through both of those entire, like, lists. And for the Skaven, maybe 40% of them are, like, pretty good looking. Like, half or more are super old, super crummy looking, and a lot of plastic, or sorry, a lot of resin and metal. And Seraphon, even worse. How oh, the Lizard... Yeah. Yeah, how the Lizardman line is that old, I do not understand. So, yeah. Like, Croxigars, one of the coolest units that the Lizardmen in Total War have. Giant 
crocodile men with like big two-handed weapons why do they look like they're like meth addicts on the tabletop they're so scrawny and old looking and uh, anyway no age of sigmar has got its own weird quirks and old models is one of them yeah but i'm just saying that like those two are the most glaring example of of these need help from a games workshop yeah. perspective. And it's funny because I've seen that people say the reason why we won't see that with Skaven is or Seraphon is because they already have two of the biggest lines of models. And it's like, I get that as an argument, but when most of the line is so looks so different that they don't even look like they belong in the same game as the models that most people are using, do they really count as being the part problem, of the line? Like with Seraphon, the biggest problem there is all their monsters are new and look really good and their troops look like hot garbage. Yeah. And so now in 40 K, I feel like there are less factions that have this particular They've problem. made a really good point of getting in there and getting rid of and updating a lot of it. But Eldar are still a lot of that's outdated. Tyranids have a few units that are still in fine cast. There are some Drukhari units that I do not understand how they exist. There's mostly their slave kind of stuff. Which oh, is, yeah. That's that's I'm surprised that it's not gone quietly to last chance to buy. Yeah, uh, very surprised. So uh, so much of the Inquisition. So like, we could go on and on about outdated models. But yeah. But anyway, that's my number one. So let's it's circle back two. to your number two and then we'll end on my number one. My number two is we can get this done quickly because we talked this before. There are factions that exist that are primary factions within the game that do not have lines. Why? The you've got you've got Thousand Sons and you've got Death Guard. Why are there no World Eaters and no Emperor's Children? For Emperor's Children, we get one Noise Marine model. That's it. And for World Eaters, we have some Corn Berserkers, which look terrible and way yep. worse than the Age of Sigmar equivalent. I think things. those ones, those ones might be metal, or they might be resin. I don't know for sure, but I know they're outdated as hell. Yeah, but that's for me. That's like you literally have this gaping area here of how come two of the Chaos Gods don't have their representative Space Marines in model form? Why? Why is that a gap that you have allowed? games workshop to exist for any period of time because <laughs> chaos gets treated weird and with games workshop i don't understand it yeah so i don't have anything more to say on that other than i'm sure there are other things there was an april fool's joke possibly hopefully not a joke that we might get squats which i think is really cool because i like dwarves i i don't play them myself but i like them existing in a setting because they're funny and goofy so that would be an example of like a faction that maybe we'll get something from them. Fingers crossed. But I don't know. I just think about all the weird races that exist. It's like, man, just crank out a couple of those and throw them in a random bestiary army that you can bring for fun. Yeah, certainly. But again, glaring hole with world eaters and emperor's children. And we've been saying, I've been hearing that even before I got into the hobby that They've been hinting at both of them for years. Well, yep. you know what? How long are we gonna? How long is the hinting gonna go on? How long does it take to? <sighs> All right, sorry. Oh no, it's it's definitely there, and a lot of people feel you. I mean, this two wounds debacle has gone on for too damn long. Yeah, which 
as that is a rule, I feel like that brings us to your number one, which peek behind the curtain, we can see each other's lists, and I don't actually agree with Oryx number one, so let's go. All right, my number one, which if you follow us on Twitter, you've heard before, and is I want to separate competitive play from the main game. In that we're going to have three types of game. We're going to have narrative play, we're going to have casual play or whatever, and we're going to have competitive play. Those will be the three separate modes, and they will be treated as such. Because the big problem with ninth is ninth very heavily feels like it was influenced towards the competitive scene in how the point system was and how the secondary objectives were and how they changed so much. And the other problem is for the rules writers. If they try and write rules, and then people that do tournament plays immediately try and find ways to break it which then trickles down to everyone else that's having fun. It's like, oh, well, that, that's gone because, you know, people had to break the game. So the reason why I disagree with Ulrich is there's a few of them, but I'm going to focus on two. One is that, technically speaking, we kind of already have this. I mean, Crusade is literally built from okay. the ground up to not be a competitive situation. I, we'll circle back to that. I want to hear your other argument because I've had this conversation. And two... And I'll admit, I have not been in the hobby as long as Ulrich. I feel like we have the exact opposite problem, that the there is not enough focus on the competitive balancing, and that competitive balancing gets thrown completely out of whack by a focus on essentially gimmick and casual focus. The idea that literally we've got a major problem in ninth edition about power creep that comes from, hey, we're going to put out a new army and we're going to give them all these toys with basically no concern for how they will actually impact the competitive balancing system because we just want people to be excited to to play them and have, and have fun with them. So we want them to be overly powerful. And so I feel like from my perspective, it's there actually currently isn't really any focus on the competitive play. It's actually more like the opposite. So we're coming at this from two different things. In regards to the Crusades, Crusades is great. That fits. That's a that's a niche that narrative play has been missing. But think about how often Games Workshop kind of talks about Crusades as a focus. I will accept that. But and think about how much space it takes up in the Codex, which is now really becoming an issue because they're getting light on the lore. And people are like, oh, well, they didn't have Crusade, which if you split this up, Crusade could be its own little supplement you buy and that extra space you go to getting the lore back in the codexes. Hold on. I don't, well, OK, that one doesn't make a lot of sense to me at all either, because I've got two ninth edition codexes and the ninth edition core book. And in each case, half or more of the book is lore. So I don't understand where that's coming from from you. Go so. back and well, see, here's the things you haven't been enough. But if you compare the lore you got in the older... Here's the advantage of being a Space Marine player. I have, like, 12 codexes, and I've only been in, like, three editions. Yeah, and admittedly, I've only got 8th edition and 9th edition codexes for both my armies. And, but in both cases, I feel like I've got tons of lore in them, and, like, over half the book. Now, and again, to come back to kind of what I was saying before, let's look at just the Tau, right? that they've had one of the most recent, like, updates. I look at what they did to the Tau, and part of me was excited about it, because Tau sucked. 
And and I looked at what they were doing. I'm like, okay, Tau are going to be really cool. And for my friend who was a Tau player, I was excited for him. I like that, in general, everyone gets their chance to shine. But there's a level of swing that, to me, indicates that the entire writing philosophy of the Tau Codex was how do we make Tau players have tons of fun and no consideration given to how do we make people have fun playing against Tau, which is a term in game design called counterplay, which is super important in competitive game balancing. I don't know. I think it depends on what your idea of what fun is going to be. Because when I, I see the superpowered ones, do you know who rushes out to buy all the new superpowered units and, you know, flips armies as they... The people you know, who make their... money off of tournament play. Yeah, but here's the thing. People that are playing for fun do not spend time writing the optimal list to get the most, you know, railguns in their army. Yes. So you're right. We There is a definite issue with power creep. But to me, power creep feels way more like it is motivated of how can we sell the most of this army the fastest to people that want to have the strongest army? Yeah, and, and to me, it feels like more like how can we sell this army the fastest to the largest part of our audience, which is not actually the competitive people, but people who will just see this is how it functions and I want to play it. I don't know. People, I think that's the mech. And the, the biggest complaint I'm seeing from a lot of people, myself included, that don't like Ninth Edition is goddamn all of these extra rules and stratagems and whatnots so that this is just the most and that was it's it's going back to what we had in seventh with death star units and formations and just making your army the most powerful hard to counter army and i don't know and like the biggest thing with eighth was eighth was too simple and i loved eighth but there were certain things I want. So if we had a separate way that you could add in these extras, and the main idea in my mind is this would forever, you know, decide when you have a pickup game, you know what you're going in for. Like, I just want a casual one, and it has its own set of rules. Like, all right, well, you can't, you know, you can do all the little things that have already kind of there to break, like, the running multiple units, the stuff that inherently comes with competitive play, but you get some of the more fun stuff that has to be house-ruled back in. Like Imperial Soup, great idea. Why did it get taken out? Because people immediately were spamming it in tournaments. Mm. Like, were you around for Imperial Soup? I mean, I'm aware of what Imperial Soup is. I have read about many of the broke... See, I've read about what lists broke the competitive scene. Because I actually like studying the competitive scene. I, I read a lot of articles about it. And when I think about, like... One of the most broken things to happen in the competitive scene, it was an 8th edition Iron Hands list, which was all about a dreadnought that was basically impossible to kill because a few different things were able to interact with it to make it very hard to damage, able to push damage off to other units, and able to heal afterwards. So, And I think that's the other thing that might separate my help, is the rules writers don't have to think, try to outthink the players. Because the rules writers are like, okay... How do I write this so it's not exploitable? But you have an entire chunk of your audience that's all about, I'm going to break this. I suppose, for me, it's like, I feel like you should be designing the game in a way that is similar to how fighting games are designed, or how MOBAs are designed, where the question, if the question, how is this fun to play against, is not being asked by someone, something is wrong. Yeah. Like, like I'll put it this way. 
I love playing against knights. Knights are really scary at first. And even though they're kind of weak right now, it's actually really funny because watching my buddy play custodians against uh, knights was really, really tragic. But I am super psyched for them to get, like, super buffed because I want knights to be – they're supposed to be, like, big and thematically – they're supposed to be, like, crazy powerful. So when I think about, like, what is fun to play against knights, I hear about – what chaos knights have some mechanic where if they have a claw they can basically reach into ruins and pull out entrenched things like to me that is as a not knight player a really badass mechanic and i think that's really cool narratively so even if i'm on the receiving end of it that's like that's really cool that's awesome i feel good about that i don't feel good about i'm playing against the tau player and oh, you just pinged my leader off the the map before he was able to move, and that doesn't... There's no narrative meaning there. There's no nothing I could have done. There's just nothing fun about that. Yeah, and a lot of that comes down to who you're playing against. But again, that would be the thing of, if you go, I want a competitive game, you're like, all right, this is going to be a challenge, and here's the thing. But if like, I want a casual game, you're like, all right, I can bring some of my more fun stuff, but this is going to be just kind of a dick and around one. And I feel like the biggest thing to me that I don't like about ninth is ninth is so much about board control and optimizing your board control and optimizing your ability to shift objectives. I will accept that, which is basically that that priority is what made melee suddenly way better in ninth edition, since you want to be able to flip objectives. I get that. I feel like the answer, though, to that isn't like somehow separating competitive from casual. I think the answer to that is more interesting and different scenarios and win conditions yeah and i guess my main problem is match play is the default version of the game but that creates there is such a gulf between if tournament play in match play and dicking around with your friends matched play that this has to be everything for everybody i have not actually taken part in a tournament i've only played with my friends so i i don't know if i have like a frame to really make that distinction i played against people that ran tournament lists and it was over on turn two well i'm I'm just saying that like that's why i i think that's why i feel the way i do because i do a lot of i read a lot about tournaments i read a lot about like competitive lists and what they are and i find those kind of constructions to be interesting and i feel like that's one of those things where like if you're playing against someone like that and you're not playing that, then yeah, I get what you mean, but I don't know how common that is. I feel like generally speaking, people who play like that are going to play with other people who play like that. So. No, you definitely, you learn not to play against these people, but it's very much ninth edition. And it feels like ninth edition's focus is on the competitive scene because that's where a lot of the perceived money is. I don't and, think they make up the sales, but I think Games Workshop see that this is the one everyone's looking at. These are the people that will buy and flip the armies the fastest. This is where we need to be. So much of it feels like they lifted the bones off what tournaments do. And I will acknowledge that I think there is a logic to your argument. I still feel like the opposite, but I I don't I don't immediately put down what you're saying, you know? Yeah, but no, this is one that's kind of, I finally got to what bugs me about ninth edition and that its mission structure doesn't feel fun. And a lot of people, I feel, are kind of that same, but like, this doesn't feel fun. 
Because, yeah. and then, I mean, that's not even going into fucking stratagem blow and the ridiculousness of stratagems went from, hey, this is fun, to you need to memorize the five stratagems you need, otherwise you're fucked. That's fair. That's fair. That feels like just the problem when you keep adding toys over and over again, though. I, I, again, I feel like the compromise here is more flavorful and different and weird scenarios and win conditions. Like, I don't know, like, what would be a good example? Like, do is there a caravan uh, win scenario where, like, well, one there, person... Again, eighth, you had missions that were like that. If you could get to the other side of the map, you know, that was a win. There was things... But ninth is all like, well, you need to control X amount of objectives and score X amount of points. That's how you win this game. Yeah, I will say the I, I like this generally an objective based game. But since the objectives tend to almost always be just stand on this and get, and build up points, we do need more variety. Yep. I'll accept that. I don't know. That's why I still play open war, because open war just kind of sidesteps that like here's a thematic mission here are your extra modifiers and they're typically like slay the warlord line breaker and first blood i do like though that the game has a built-in uh tabling doesn't mean an auto win most of the time because <laughs> i there's a narrative thing there i really like but anyway we got on this long enough i think yeah no that's that's like my recent hill that i die on that's kind of gotten under my skin and I feel like there's I feel like there's definitely more for us to kind of touch on. I feel like I'd want to bring on like Wretched to, to talk about it too, since he's the guy I play with the most. And maybe you brought on someone that you play with a lot, and we could have this kind of conversation. But this he- this heavy bolter is uh, at risk of turning into a frag cannon. So, <laughs> but anyways, let us know what you thought, and uh, let us know what your fixes for Warhammer would be if you got in charge. Yes, please. I'd like to know. And uh, maybe we will do one for Age of Sigmar, which might be a bit more difficult because I haven't played Age of Sigmar in a very long time. But let's say it's gonna have to wait till I till I've actually played some and know what's going on with it. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll do something else. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do whatever it is that the algorithm demands of you, so that we can continue, you know, existing as a podcast. Because for the audience dries up, so do we. And hopefully you found us on SoundCloud, Digital, Google Play, Podcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or the Fireside Alliance. If you found us somewhere else, tell us about it because it's the news to us. And also thank you for listening and tell us if there's another platform you want us to look at. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time and remember, believe in squats.